Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 28, American Amnesia. Welcome to History Against the Grain, and we've got so much important stuff going on right now, but I think most important of all is that, Chris, you're rewatching Deadwood, and I think that's what our, our audience needs to hear about, first of all. Yeah, it's true, Josh, um, and I'm, I'm rewatching it because of the many and sundry life lessons it has to <laughs> offer us in these uh, these fraught times. If, if we don't watch ourselves, like in a, in a couple of weeks, this podcast will just be a, a Deadwood recap <laughs> podcast. We'll act out some of our favorite characters. How's that? Yeah, that's I right. I can do a pretty mean calamity, Jane, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> We'd have to switch our, uh, our our rating on the podcast if you were, if you were doing that character. <laughs> I told you last night, though, I, I, I went to, um, you know, what, what is now my go-to right now, uh, Deadwood, in order to feel better. And, and folks who have watched, you know, Deadwood will have an appreciation for this. I needed my spirits uplifted. Because uh, when mm-hmm. I had first turned on uh, to uh, HBO, what I saw instead was an image that uh, appeared to be maybe at first I thought it was advertising for maybe a new, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic uh, movie, a kind of, uh, you know, maybe a zombie fest or some kind of. And, you know, I'm always down for that, frankly. And that and, I, and I'm OK, sure. That's another uh, therapy session. But uh, the reason I thought that, Josh, is because there was a, an image on the screen that showed the Washington Mall and the, the reflection pond, you know, the famous um, mm-hmm. uh, scene there that, that uh, at the center of which is the Washington Monument, except in its uh, normal coloration uh, of, you know, sort of off white marble or something, it appeared to be uh, in the image on my screen, it appeared to be maybe um, greatly tarnished uh, from what I, what I could tell. So it caught my eye. I thought, oh, great. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be like a zombie movie in Washington. Because I, you know, I love zombies. I, it's clear the zombie movies, you know, they're such lovely metaphors for the world we're actually living in right now. And uh, so I thought, great, another, you know. But that's not what it was, Josh. That's not what it was. And so as I squinted, I had my glasses, I squinted at the screen to read the text that accompanied it. You know what it said? It said, throughout American life, our better angels, in quotes, have uh, <laughs> battled to lead the country forward and prevailed. And I'm thinking, uh, prevailed? Wait, well, hold on now just a second. Is that what we're calling this moment? You know, we've prevailed? I, I, uh, yeah, suddenly I was without mooring here. I was suddenly at, at, at sea. I was out at sea. This documentary, based on John Meacham's bestseller, illuminates our present-day fraught political reality by exploring historical challenges 
uh, of the past, including the women's suffrage movement, the incarceration of Japanese Americans, McCarthyism, and the, well, at this point, I was just screaming at the TV. Fats why he issued on Al Shaitan was delivered plainly. It's the day of Kiyama. To the believers, I bring you times of joy, but if you want beef, I'll fillet me on you. Our greatest interpreter of history, John Meacham. Oh, man. That guy, he lives a charmed life. I don't know, you know, who he paid off, how he got in with the, with the establishment, but the go-to interpreter of America's history. And I love that uh, these are all challenges that have been solved. Thankfully, women's rights were solved in the 1920s with the right to vote. Yep. Thankfully. Check it yeah. off the list. Oh, my God. Yep. We have done it. We've done it again, America. We've prevailed. Uh, and nothing pretentious about that title, would you say? The Soul of America uh, is John Meacham. Yeah. I remember back in the day, you know, and, and he was reputed to be the nicest guy in, in rock and roll. And I think you told me one time you might have met him, Huey Lewis, in the yeah. news. And back in the day, he had a, a video, you know, for his song, The Heart of Rock and Roll is Still Beaten. Mm -hmm. And it showed him modestly at the end uh, with a what appeared to be a beating heart coming through his shirt so that we knew at that moment that we were in good hands because rock and roll hadn't died, that it was still beating in the chest of one Huey Lewis. And uh, okay, well, he seemed like a nice fella, you know, and we could overlook that bit of grandiosity. But I will not overlook <laughs> John Meacham <laughs> climbing to know the soul of America. I don't know. Josh, when you think soul of America, who do you think of? Do you think of John Meacham? I actually do think of John Meacham, yes, our, our most soulful public figure. I don't know, James Brown. Uh, <laughs> the list could go on and on, but... Yeah, yeah, we might, might start think with James of, Brown. Know, some of the great poets or, you know, some of the great painters. Speakers of truth. Yeah. Um, the great literary figures, you know, of, of our time. Who knows? Um, but in I, each case, yeah, you I, would be I wrong have a, because the answer was John Meacham. I mean, the soul of America is bad, but I, I have a, almost a bigger problem with the, the whole better angels of our nature idea. Um, it's just kind of triumphalist progressive history that of course things will get better because the right side always wins out and uh and and, and progress is a reality and and it's just so ahistorical um which i guess is what you expect from somebody who's not actually an historian like john meacham no john's the soul of america he has a different job <laughs> uh yeah so thanks for letting me vent folks you know those of you who listen to the program will uh, will understand and i do appreciate uh, the opportunity uh, for my own little moment here of uh, catharsis. Uh, but we're not done yet, are we? No, there's there's plenty more to talk about, uh, including our upcoming interview with Greg Downs of UC Davis, which will be coming up real soon. Yeah, I'm very excited about our interview uh, coming up with Greg. You know, here's a guy who, uh, as as we'll hear, is has been involved in some, you know, really vital sort of, you know, public forum uh, about about history and, and, and how we remember history in this country, or conversely, how we often misremember history. In fact, misremembering history uh, could have also been uh, the title of our episode today, but we decided to go with American amnesia, which, uh, just as it sounds, has a lot in common with uh, misremembering. And, and, and so what 
we're devoting the episode to is, is how we choose either not to remember or to misremember the past for any particular reason we might have, be it political or, or, or cultural, what, what have you. This is a topic, you know, we've talked about before uh, on, on, the, on the podcast, certainly. Uh, and it's one that we're revisiting today because it's so, you know, it's so timely. Uh, and, and for the last several months has been so much in our laps, as it were. You know, as as we contemplate the things that are that are happening now, uh, in in this little pre-interview segment, uh, what we're actually going to address is is a recent uh, piece from the New Yorker by the historian Maya Jasanov, uh, and it's called "Misremembering the British Empire." And Josh, you just sent it to me uh, the other day, so why don't you take the wheel for a second, explain what caught your attention about this particular New Yorker article? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely another one of those hag miracles, right? Because we were coming up on this uh, interview with Greg Downs, who who deals a lot with with monuments and, and you know is a public historian amongst his other talents and skills. And then this kind of showed up in my um, in my Twitter feed, and it's about um, basically how the you know to, to use the, the the subtitle of the piece, how did the British become so blinkered about the nation their nation's imperial history? Um, and it's just a, a really outstanding piece uh, that gets into the way that the British Empire has been remembered and, of course, has been misremembered by, um, by British people specifically, but I think, you know, in the broader public as well. And, and it gets into all kinds of important issues, including the issue of, of monuments, which obviously was a huge um, uh, uh, deal this, this summer as monuments across the world began coming down uh, famously, and, and the article gets into this. The uh, slave trader Edward Colston in Bristol, England, had his monument uh, pulled down and then tossed in the sea, which was a, uh, a lovely picture and, and video. Um, and, and so the author gets into, um, you know, these kind of issues about how history is erased, both through, um, you know, she kind of counters the idea, actually, that, that pulling down statues is erasing history. And to, uh, to quote from the piece, my, uh, Jasnov says, Erasing history is a charge invariably lobbed at those who want to remove the statues of contentious figures, but taking down a statue isn't erasing history, it's revising cultural priorities. And we will ask Greg Downs about this in, in a bit. Um, but what she, she really makes a, the case for is that, you know, while we've spent so much time talking about the dangers of pulling down monuments, she talks about all the actual historical documents destroyed by the British Empire as the empire was crumbling, as it was falling apart. British administrators did a lot of work to burn documents, to hide documents, and to, in many ways, hide the criminality of the British Empire. Um, so it's it's a really fascinating piece that, that shows you, you know, just another example of how these empires fall down eventually in the 20th century, um, but their legacies are still very much alive today, in this case, because of you know, their desire to paint their own history in a way that goes against their own documentation, their own archives, much of which has been hidden, hidden away or, or sometimes in extreme cases burned literally uh, at the point of, of independence for their former colonies. You know what? It's almost counterintuitive, isn't it? In other words, the way that we're conditioned to think of uh, commemoration and public, you know, um, public remembering of some triumphal past is in the form of these monuments and statues. And, and because we're conditioned to think of them that way, you know, when they're removed, I suppose it's, 
you know, it's not entirely illogical then to think, well, gee, you, you, you've removed the history. But uh, what she talks about in the article and what you were just discussing and, and, and you know, what Greg is going to address in the, in the interview to come is that the mistake, the fundamental mistake there is that we make that identity between those acts of public commemoration and particularly the, you know, statue figures that we identify them with the history itself, because, you know, what what Greg is going to suggest and, and, and you know, what the article suggests is that oftentimes those tangible symbols, those, you know, brass or iron or marbled symbols of some figure, some, you know, triumphal figure, you know, often a military figure, let's say, uh, themselves represent a kind of revisionism. Uh, of the past, in other words, when when they were erected, they they weren't done so, you know, in a in some neutral frame. They mm-hmm. they were meant to strike a claim, you know, usually on on behalf of the nation state for some, you know, in the case of the empire for some, you know, uh, act of of empire building. You know, um, a guy like Colston, you know, was a, among other things was a slave trader. And, and, and so you follow that line, you know, well, slave trading played into the building of, you know, the Atlantic Empire of England, uh, you know, fundamentally. So we assume that that's the history, but it's not, it's, it's a kind of, um, what would you call it, a kind of editorial comment by the promoters of that triumphal empire building, the actual history, what we would, and we're going to get into this in the, in the discussion then and also uh, afterwards, the actual history as we would understand it as historians, right, Josh, you know, we're talking about the, the records, you know, the documents, the transcripts found in, in, you know, archives and in government offices and in private correspondences, that, that is that basic stuff of history has already, as she points out, has already been destroyed, uh, literally, by the time the empire's over. There's a great scene in the article when the, you know, the people of India are celebrating their newfound independence in 1947, and, and they look up, and, and there's smoke, you know, wafting across the sky, and they wonder, you know, what's on fire? Well, what was on fire were, you know, reams of British imperial documents being burned by uh, imperial British officials to erase, literally, uh, in this case, or, or, you know, to to destroy the uh, actual historical record of British imperial rule. Yeah, and, and just to put a finer point on it, you know, they knew what they were doing. There's no question because she has another story where uh, in Uganda, as Uganda was, was uh, getting towards its independence, she says, quote, colonial officials in Uganda rifling through their files to figure out what to destroy came up with a name for the process of erasure. They called it Operation Legacy, right? In other words, they're protecting their legacy by destroying their files. So, I mean, that's the act of a guilty conscience, right? That's the act of people who know that that the records are not uh, going to shine a, a, a nice light upon upon the empire. Um, and and once that's destroyed, once that story is is going to go untold, then it opens up this space where the British can continue to look back at the empire as um, you know this uh, this positive period in their past. And certainly that's that's less uh, true now than it has been in the past. But you still get uh, historians like Niall Ferguson, who's written books extolling the virtues of the British Empire and the, and the, the greatness of the British Empire and the progressive nature of the empire. And when you realize that 
those stories are so much easier to tell when you're not looking at all these documents that were destroyed that speak to the torture and the beatings and the arrest that went on um, in this process of decolonization in the first place. Um, and, you know, getting back to the statue thing, as much as people like our president want to, you know, talk about the destruction of these monuments as destroying history or, or anything like that, you know, the people who are most concerned with destroying history are going to be those at the top. It's going to be the power structure who wants to hide things away. When the people themselves want to change the story, uh, then they're the ones being charged with with uh, refusing to look history in the face or erasing history or whatever the charge may be. Um, and I, I think we need to recognize, uh, you know, who's really doing that erasure, who's really doing that hiding, who's really doing the destruction. And it's not regular folks. No, I like that a lot. And as I, as I say, it's almost you know, counterintuitive, you know, to, to what we might assume is, is history. And, and as you point out, when, when the actual materials of history are deliberately destroyed to cover up or erase or mask, you know, all these crimes, then by default, the history becomes whatever ceremonial statues they've erected long since to celebrate all of that. Uh, that's mm -hmm. the history. So, you know, the irony, the sad irony is that when, when folks understand that and they say, we don't, we don't have to celebrate this in, in the form of a statue, we're going to take the statue down, that as you point out, then the charge is leveled. Well, you're the one that is now erasing history, you know, just to make the whole farce complete, I guess. You know. Yeah. Well, I tell you, this has got me excited for our interview. Uh, with Greg, because as we've suggested, here's a guy who's really been on the front lines of a lot of this in some very interesting ways. So let me go ahead and introduce uh, Greg Downs to everybody, and then we'll uh, we'll bridge over to the interview. Stumbling to November knowing goddamn well I can't make nothing close to this tender Can't fade, can't accelerate, so pitch me into that blender Regardless where the sun is, I'm my own personal winter I'm cold, I think I'm cold, I'm just trying to remember Just trying to remember It's October and I'm tired it is our pleasure to have on the podcast today Professor Gregory Downs from the University of California, Davis. Greg received his bachelor's degree in history from Yale University, uh, later picked up a, a MFA degree in fiction writing from the famed University of Iowa Writers Workshop. Uh, not to be outdone, he then went on to get a, a master's in history and earned his Ph.D., from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, currently, he is, as I say, teaching at the University of California, Davis, where he focuses on the study of the political and cultural history of the United States in the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, he investigates the transformative impact of the Civil War and the end of slavery in the era of Reconstruction in particular. He's the author of a couple monographs now uh, treating uh, on these themes, including his 2015 book, After Appomattox, Military Occupation and the Ends of War. Greg is also a public historian 
and has co-written the National Park Service's theme study on reconstruction and helped edit the Park Service's handbook on reconstruction. Uh, his work has been covered in the Atlantic and in the New York Times. And at UC Davis, uh, he was rewarded with the UC Davis Distinguished Scholarly Public Service Award. So uh, a guy who has interests on both the academic uh, scholarly side of historical production, but also very much interested, as we'll hear, in the uh, public square of how history finds its way into our common spaces. So yeah, Josh, let's bring it on. Let's hear from Greg Downs. We are delighted to have with us here on History Against the Grain today, the distinguished historian and author, Gregory Downs. Welcome, Greg, to History Against the Grain. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. You know, it occurred to me that we should most definitely invite you uh, on the podcast after uh, reading a piece in the New York Times back in uh, late September uh, last month, about a month ago now, uh, on a demonstration. And that, that was the word that the, the Times used, demonstration involving historians. So, you know, naturally my ears pricked up uh, in a story <laughs> uh, that Jennifer Schusler wrote uh, titled Amid the Monument Wars, A Rally for More History. And as I got into the uh, article, you know, I learned uh, the basic outline of, of what had taken place. That is at the Gettysburg uh, National uh, Battlefield Park, and uh, presumably some some others, uh, historians agreed to uh, meet up on a given Saturday. I was uh, thinking, uh, carrying uh, various signs with with quotations uh, ranging from 19th century newspapers, uh, according to the article, Confederate uh, language from the Confederate Constitution, and even facts about. Robert E. Lee's treatment of the enslaved. And so uh, holding the signs and even some wearing T-shirts emblazoned with a hashtag, we want more history. Uh, yeah, I was quite interested and I was delighted to know that one of the organizers uh, of the event uh, was uh, a local. Uh, that is uh, one of our colleagues in Northern California, at UC Davis, and that he was Gregory Downs. So it was by that means that you heard from me. And as I say, I'm delighted to have you here today. And and I tell you, we want to hear about it. Um, how did all that go? It was a really interesting experience. Um, you know, like a lot of historians I've had, you know, and, and like you all uh, experience in um, doing public history of some uh, types that kind of fit in institutional patterns, uh, you know, talking to teachers workshops like you have read, going to working with national park sites directly, 
you know, writing for public audiences, you know, giving talks at libraries and things that aim for more of a public audience. Um, and I've also separately had experience, like I would guess that you all have and many uh, people do, of being part of public demonstrations. But the two have never really uh, come together uh, in quite this context, you know, that uh, uh, as they did there. And so what it came from was, uh, you know, our, uh, an engagement that, that I and my collaborator, Kate Mazur at Northwestern, have um, uh, in a, our experience of engaging with a uh, fellow historian named Scott Hancock, who's a professor of history and Africana studies at Gettysburg College. And Scott has for years been prodding uh, scholars to not go beyond what they do in working with the park sites, which is extensive and, and, and uh, in certain ways very successful, um, but to also recognize how against the wishes of uh, park superintendents and rangers, parks, uh, national park sites devoted to the Civil War era continue to be utilized for pretty obvious reasons um, by neo-Confederates and that this has really increased over the last uh, five years. Uh, Gettysburg is a pretty small town and the park takes up a considerable amount of it as you probably know. So for Scott and his family this is extremely visible. He about five years ago um, started to go uh, not long in the aftermath of the um, killings in Charleston, South Carolina. He, uh, he at AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, he and his family started to go out um, with, with uh, information about what the Confederate flag represented historically as a way of pushing back against the utilization, the ways that the Confederate flag was displayed many places in Gettysburg, despite Pennsylvania being a Union state and uh, Gettysburg being a U.S. victory. Um, and, um, you know, that the, the, the association of that with the murderer in Charleston, uh, who had done pictures of himself with different Confederate imagery and so on, um, you know, pushed him to, uh, to be front and center more. Uh, with, he experimented over the years with different kinds of signage, sometimes standing in the center of Gettysburg, sometimes going to different places in the park. Um, and it was a very interesting model among the many different ways that historians uh, respond. Um, this had shifted over the last couple of years and especially earlier this year. Um, we're in the aftermath of some of the protests that followed George Floyd um, and the debates over monuments. Um, there rumors spread uh, that a group was going to go to Gettysburg to pull down memorials there of Confederates. So in these rumor, rumor mills, a group of militia came on July the 4th uh, to quote in their, you know, to quote unquote defend, you know, uh, their, you know, the statues. They get there and all they find is uh, Scott and a couple of uh, friends of his, um, you know, uh, wearing uh, these little placards that they devise that give information, some at sites that are specific to Lee, about Lee as a particularly cruel and vicious slaveholder, um, some at sites that are devoted to other people who are memorialized at Gettysburg, others with just general information about the Confederacy as part of a group of non-academics that Scott works with. Um, these uh, bands of dozens of extremely armed people uh, started to confront them, uh, to take up tactical positions, to, uh, you know, uh, 
kind of uh, flash their weapons at them. One of the people there with Scott, one of his friends, is a retired state trooper who described to me his own um, shock, uh, you know, that he had, you know, in, in, in a full career as a state trooper, had never seen anything like the weaponry that people had come out with. Um, another of his friends had videotaped it. Um, and we had been talking with a number of scholars uh, at the journal that Kate and I co-edit about what would be a way for a journal, a scholarly journal, to respond to George Floyd. Of course, like many uh, historical associations and departments, including my own, and I think probably yours too, issued statements, and we were attuned to that, but we were also attuned to what would it mean to put our commitments into practice. Um, and uh, so seeing Scott's uh, bravery in the face of this, but also the urgency of the action, um, and engage, having already been engaged with Scott on these questions of what would be a way that we could create a thoughtful, uh, you know, meaningful, active response by something like a history journal. Uh, he, uh, you know, reached out to us, to uh, Hillary Green, who's our digital editor, who's a very active a uh, public uh, historian of a historian of Reconstruction, but a public historian, especially about enslaved people on campus, professor at University of Alabama, and all kinds of interesting hands-on and digital work she does there to bring them to life. And so uh, the four of us came up with the idea of a day of action, right, that in some level, um, but an action that was a demonstration, uh, not a, you know, protest, but a demonstration and a demonstration of doing good history. And we were highly aware, you know, all of us have worked with national park sites in different ways of some of the gains that they've made. But we're also aware from being told by National Park's uh, employees that they're wrestling with, um, not only in this case, a, a, a particularly horrible administration uh, in, in the White House, but also with the legacy of 100 years of uh, bad history being done that they can't overcome in a moment or that leaves them with a legacy of memorials um, that are not the selection or choice of the current superintendents and rangers. And so we decided to go around, you know, the, the, after being aware of the limits of the National Park Service, to go around to, to set up demonstrations and to ask people for places where they wanted to act. And quickly it spread beyond national park sites as people got interested in other places. Hillary went to Elizabeth City, North Carolina, where she had connections and had previously lived. Um, Kate Mazur went to a cemetery, National Cemetery in Chicago. Other people went to park sites in St. Louis, near Richmond, uh, numerous places around Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New Orleans. Um, there's going to be some others that I'll, uh, I'll forget. Um, and what we asked them to do was to do good history uh, for the people there, to be available and open to talk about the historical background, and also to utilize uh, social media to broadcast it and encourage others to do it. And so, um, you know, in the mysterious world of social media, it started to pick up, uh, pick up steam over the course of the day. And that brought in non-academics or teachers or other people who were interested. Um, so that was, that was our goal, that could we get historians a little bit out of their comfort zone, but in a way that retained its belief, as Scott said from the beginning, that, you know, people, historians might have different views on a number of different things about public commemoration, how to respond to it now. But the thing we all believe is that the end result has to be a deeper engagement with history. Um, and that, you know, when, uh, you know, you know, so, you know, how would we model that? 
of an idea of centering that as the as as a unifying agenda for historians and also something to um, hopefully striking for visitors to parks like Gettysburg where I went and joined them or the other sites that I mentioned as they came in there and saw these signs kind of asking them to think about what they're seeing and also what they're not seeing what's been forgotten or covered up well you know I have to say it's um, it's inspiring you know, because I think that the divide between between let's say the you know the the professional cohort or the academy of of historians and what we might consider you know that sort of you know interface with the the broader public, you know, has been for some time kind of elusive. You know, um, and so there you are, you know, literally on the ground. You know, where, where these these monuments and at, and at Gettysburg, you know, folks haven't been there. There's no shortage of both, you know, Confederate and, and Union uh, monuments to choose from. Uh, and, and the kinds of folks, as you say, beyond just the general public, some of the more, you know, maybe committed reenactors, shall we say, you know, folks who like to maybe wear the buttons of the coats and and that sort of thing, you know, who invest a lot of their own identity in these things. So it struck me, yeah, it's very inspiring and really sort of not too common opportunity to bring those various strands of the past and thinking about the past and memory and public commemoration and academic history and all that kind of stuff, you know, together there in, in one place. So, you know, having having done it, um, you know, how, how do you feel about it in retrospect? Yeah, I think uh, you captured some of the goals and the potential excitement of it. Um, and I would also, you know, talk about, be glad to talk about some of the challenges and, and limits of it. Um, but I think the thing that we felt, you know, one thing, you know, as we got started, the four of us, um, A, the challenges of doing it in a, in a period of COVID, B, the challenges of articulating, because it was outside of people's comfort zone, exactly what we were asking people uh, to do in a way that, you know, would uh, and see after Scott's experience July 4th, the challenge of articulating it in a way that got the word out, but didn't attract, you know, some uh, uh, unwanted, uh, you know, violent confrontations. We certainly did not aim to uh, put anybody in, in harm's way. And, and Scott talked to people about de-escalation, but we were also cautious about how do we get enough word out that people will, some people will know about it, but not so much that it creates some kind of rumors that put people in dangerous situations. So as we wrestled with all of those things, uh, you know, and that even if we succeeded, we told people we don't want big gatherings because of, you know, we're taking very seriously, of course, um, the problems even in outdoor gatherings of large numbers of people in, in a time of pandemic. So we all had the concern of, you know, what if you throw a party and nobody comes, right? Uh, you know, what if you <laughs> suggest something and nobody takes you up on it? Um, and of course, uh, with people dispersed, uh, you know, in, in, in these ways, you know, uh, it was, it certainly had that potential. So one of the things I felt great about it was how many people responded, how many people were enthusiastic and did it, and the people who did it, who expressed an interest in doing it again. Um, how many people found out about it only over the course of the day or afterwards as they saw it come through on their social media, but were really excited and really wanted to get involved in doing something similar in the future? And how much sense it made to people of, being, of trying to orient the discussion around 
what would it mean to bring in more history and to get more and better coverage of stories that are undertold or not told at all? Um, and, uh, you know, how does that help uh, to reassert the place of historians and their role, not, you know, that we have a license. I mean, we have a degree, but we don't have a license. Everybody gets to have ideas about the past, which is good. Um, but that we can have a role in helping to point out the aspects of, of the history that have not been told. Uh, so I think in a lot of those ways, it was really heartening and exciting. I think we also learned, you know, about some of the challenges of trying to pull things off in multiple areas and some of the particular challenges of doing it, uh, you know, shortly before an election uh, in the September of, an, of a presidential election year during a pandemic as particularly, uh, you know, complex sets of uh, <laughs> issues. And I think it only really worked uh, because of the long experience that Scott, as I said, had had himself with his family and over the last couple of years with it, increasing numbers of friends who had encountered some of the things that can go haywire, can go wrong, and were really thoughtful about how to uh, you know, make sure we're doing everything we can to not be putting people into a bad situation. Um, you know, I think we always wonder in these circumstances, uh, you know, you know, that are we preaching to the choir? And certainly on social media and so on, it's very easy to see how things spread through like minded people. Um, even in those cases, there are things about the battle, you know, the role of African-American soldiers at the Battle of Newmarket Heights, things about the specific African-American community in Gettysburg and Chambersburg that, you know, people are bringing forward. Um, things like that, that really uh, some aspects that some of the historians in Washington, D.C., including the idea that one of the historic forts there was built on land seized from a free woman of color, which is something that I didn't know. Some other places, so even people who started with this assumption on social media learn things. Um, you know, some of the other stories are ones that would be much more familiar to historians, you know, um, the uh, massacres in New Orleans and so on, things like that. But we did, um, but you know, but even there, you know, you could see this potential for spreading new ideas. On the ground, it was really interesting. I mean, the place where there was the most encounters with the public were the spots in Gettysburg. Uh, there were people who were um, genuinely curious. I mean, it's a surprise to get there and to see a group of people, like you say, wearing t-shirts and, you know, with these placards that give information and they didn't, were information heavy. You know, our goal was, you know, to, uh, you know, get out evidence about these uh, these ideas. And so some people really did come up and read. Some people were obviously angry uh, about our presence. Uh, some people were curious, really? some people were supportive. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, only time would tell whether, you know, what difference it made uh, to those people. Uh, I hope it made some difference and, and, and at least mm -hmm. opening up a space mm -hmm. for them of, as they see what they see, say at the Peace Light at Gettysburg or, um, you know, what are they not seeing? That's really, really amazing to hear about. Uh, it's like a historian direct action that we don't usually get, right? We're usually in the classroom talking to specific groups, but to let people come to us is a, is a different way of, of doing this and uh, sounded like a, a really amazing experience. I wanted to ask you about, because you're the first time we, we've had a public historian on this podcast, about these controversies about pulling down statues. Um, this was obviously a big deal earlier in the summer. Um, it seems to have died down a little bit, but there was just this article in The New Yorker, I think it published yesterday, uh, called Misremembering the British Empire mm. uh, by a historian named Maya Josenoff. 
Um, and she notes at one point uh, about this this issue of t- taking down statues. I quote, erasing history is a charge invariably lobbed at those who want to remove the statues of contentious figures. But taking down a statue isn't erasing history. It's revising cultural priorities. Those who pulled down the Colston statue, and that's referring to Edward Colston, and, uh, were, in a way, were in a way making history by insisting that public spaces reflect the values of post-colonial Britain, just as citizens of former colonies have renamed, removed, and reframed imperial symbols. So I'm just wondering how, how you feel about you know, these public spaces and, and monuments in these public spaces. Do you think that, that it requires you know, considerable efforts to, to rethink, reframe, take stuff down, replace stuff. Is this, this has to be an ongoing process? Is that kind of how you feel about it? That's a really big and good question. I have not yet read the Jasanoff uh, article uh, and I'll look forward to it. And I have not been to Bristol, uh, UK, but I you know, did see the, the images um, after right. it was taken down. I didn't, didn't really know about that one in particular. As a historian of, of the American South and as somebody who grew up in uh, places, Kentucky and Tennessee, partly, uh, you know, from a central Kentucky family, which were, uh, you know, was a unionist area where there's now statues for the Confederacy, uh, you know, which is quite common across the Upper South and even some parts of the Lower Midwest. Um, So in that context, I always, um, you know, even as as a teenager, had a sense that these were um, you know, propaganda of particular kinds, right? They were claims mm-hmm. about about the past. And so that's one ish thing I think that, you know, we have to take put on the table that it's not that these are uh, that the statues as sometimes I said are history and things that come around are revising, but that many of the statues themselves were revisionist history, um, you know, that right, they were right. revising away, you know, in the case of places like the Green River town that, that, that I and my family are from, um, you know, revising away the notion that there were, you know, uh, white Kentuckians who fought for the United States against the Confederacy. Not that these were perfect human beings, but that this was also a piece, this assertion of Confederate identity erased them. Of course, you know, even more defiantly, it erased the presence of of African-Americans, and it actually erased, you know, the history of the Confederacy itself, of what Confederate leaders said it was about and what they fought for, which as you know, they were pretty explicit about. So in places where, uh, you know, as as, uh, was saying, where, where the democratic process has been stymied, you know, it's completely understandable and, and, and necessary mm-hmm. uh, for people to, to be heard. Um, but I, where it's possible to have open and free exchange, I do favor the idea of what would it, you know, questions about what would it take for a, a place, a society to really engage with? What's wrong with a, with a monument? What does it cover up? Uh, what got obscured, what's not being told, and so that when a decision comes, it feels, uh, you know, that it has been a part of an educational process. And so my reasons for that, one, are that sometimes that can, you know, lead people to a a deeper understanding of the past. And two, that I guess what I I have, uh, I share what you quoted of Jasanoff's suspicion and cynicism about the ways that the disappearance of history gets utilized, but not 100%. In other words, I do think that uh, Daryl Scott has has written about uh, his fear um, that the end result of this will be that, uh, you know, that 
there'll be a disappearance of history as too complicated, too messy, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, heroes put up by, you know, people whom I share more in common with get proven to be also, you know, uh, you know, imperfect at best or worst. Um, and that there'll be a sort of uh, back and forth between sides uh, in which the compromise will be to have no um, memories of, uh, of history at all, a kind of very American hmm. amnesia. And I have to say that I have some concerns about that, and I have particular concerns about that in California, where it seems to me that amnesia, uh, you know, might be the, uh, you know, that we could put that on the state flag as a uh, sort of in, in point of, uh, you know, of what, you know, the state seems to aim toward. Um, so I do like the idea that in places where it can be open, that rather than have this sort of quick reactive response, of a public uh, session, right? You know, there's some pieces, New York did some pieces of this, and in my view, then fumbled the end. But they had public listening section, sessions. People could bring, members of the public could bring worries about any monument in the city. Shakespeare, not just the sort of ones that spoke to Confederacy and so on. Um, and give their reasons. They had a, a, you know, reports prepared on um, all of the monuments that were raised by the public. Um, they mm -hmm. had an active debate as they narrowed down the list. And then my understanding is that when they got close to a decision, political forces intervened to, you know, have them, uh, <laughs> you know, back away from any significant, um, you know, revisions. And, uh, you know, so that part was a fumble. But I could imagine California really having a kind of listening sessions. Uh, hear from everybody, not just the ones that bother me, uh, you know, but, you know, from everybody really see can we develop more information about how they were made what were the kind of things said at the uh, ceremony what did you know was it defined at the time for what it's you right. know uh, what it meant I know a number of people in uh, southern cities who were skeptical of taking them down and when historians brought forward the speeches made when they were commemorated were like oh I get it Right. Like, uh, you know, to them, it was a statue they drove by and didn't think much about. And that's a blindness that is their own. Um, but as they got to a recognition that the people at the time commemorated these statues of the Confederacy to celebrate disfranchising black people and to celebrate segregation, it finally, at long last, uh, uh, you know, struck home. And so I would like to keep open that space that. Um, you know, the, the, that we can engage in a democratic society, can learn more and get to a point where it makes, uh, you know, reasoned, engaged decisions about what it wants to, what can't be salvaged, which might be a lot, in my opinion, um, what might be able to be contextualized, and most importantly, what else we need to do. That if we come out of this with few, with no memorials, we really miss the boat, right? It's the untold stories that we talk about in our classes. And uh, there's never money for that, right? You know, this is why I think city governments don't mind when things get go away. It saves them money. But ask them to, you know, kick it to, to make a new statue, you know, that's no more much, much right. harder. Uh, I love, I mean, I, I loved what you were saying about you know, if history gets too complex, that we're just not going to talk about it anymore. Like we're just taking away from all those spaces. The the counter to that, I guess, is I was in the the uh, Smithsonian a few years ago, maybe three four years ago, in their uh, their section. It's called the Price of Freedom. I think it is. It's about America's wars, and you're going through, and there's George Washington's sword, and you know, cool cool stuff like that. And then you get to the end of it, and it's the War in Iraq, two thousand three. 
And here is what it says. In 2003, America's role as sole superpower was once again tested in Iraq, the heart of the Middle East, uh, called Operation Iraqi Freedom. An invasion was launched in ah. March 2003. So oh. it's just, you know, the, I, you can almost see the editing process there and the, and the, the committee that had to come up with that, that caption, which ultimately says nothing, right? It reveals nothing about the war, why it happened, what it was about. Yeah. Um, I mean, is that is that... The, the danger is that if you have these these big discussions and you include all these voices, what you end up with is this kind of mush that ultimately doesn't reveal anything. That's a big danger. And certainly, you know, as a fellow uh, teacher like you all, I wince at the passivity, right, which is, you know, the passive yeah. voice, right? An invasion was launched, <laughs> the sort of classic ways of obscuring who did what to whom, right? Yeah. Which is, uh, <laughs> the, you know, not the only aspect of history, but at the, you know, what are the crucial aspects of history, you know, that we, we try and focus on? Who were the actors? Who were the agents? It is true mm -hmm. that I think it's uh, going to be challenging um, in, uh, you know, to, to that no statue can appease every person and um, that a process that, you know, kind of um, goes through, you know, something going through those processes, which are, you know, especially at a place like the Smithsonian, which has a lot of pressure and visibility, right. are going to, uh, you know, fall prey to that. I do find that um, for all of the challenges of dealing with the legacy of what has taken place at the national park sites over time, I do find that um, the national park sites represent a uh, distinct um, vision of what's possible. Um, that their interest in, in, in you know what historians say, um, their interest in uh, you know being able to present stories. That they find that there's a number of um, superintendents and interpreters who. Uh, take for granted that they're supposed to say uh, the Civil War was caused by slavery, that there are going to be people there who don't agree and, you know, that's okay, but they feel that confidence because of feeling the the backdrop of what historians, uh, you know, they, they're all the time, they repeat to me, uh, well, historians don't don't debate this anymore, right? You know, that thing of if historians can really explain what things are beyond debate and what things are part of debate, that's something they're very attuned to. So I do think that it's possible, uh, you know, in some context to, to do better than that, than that awful sign you recommended. <laughs> Not you recommended, but that you read. Um, and it is a big danger. I, I, I don't think there's any foolproof way. I think it's a really vital alternative, however, you know, Greg, to, you know, present uh, you know, a definitive viewpoint. Um, you know, Josh and I, <laughs> to, to the mush, in other words, to that kind of watered down, you know, it reminds me of the old joke, you go back in the day, and I'm, I am dating myself here, you go with a group of friends to the video store to pick out a movie to watch, and, you know, nobody can agree, so you end up getting one that nobody likes. <laughs> right, right. You know, and that, that sort of reminds me of the piece from the Smithsonian that Josh read that, uh, you know, we and we've frust we've been uh, frustrated on on the podcast. We've we've vented a bit about what we call both sidesism. You know, this presumption that to any given issue, you know, there's going to be two equally valid but different opposing perspectives or something. And uh, you know, you you guys went out to Gettysburg, and at least you know, according to your colleague Kate uh, Mazur, you know, she said we're trying to poke holes in the lost cause mythology. <laughs> you know, show how it's inaccurate. Yes. Uh, in other words, so it's it's not to say, therefore, that, you know, someone might uh, take a contrary opinion or something, but you're being clear 
about, you know, what your your interpretive understanding is, you know, what your what your um, your perspective is based on, you know, what evidence you have, et cetera. In the case of your folks at Gettysburg, you had some of it on the signs, you know, you had statements written from newspapers and, and others. And so, um, yeah, I think that there's something to be said for that, you know, uh, that is to say, maybe what we're looking at here is cultivating a new understanding of, of what history, how history gets done among the public, you know, in other words, we're all educators. And, you know, we, we would be horror struck, I think, if, if students came away from any of our classes thinking that somehow the history they received was like manna from heaven, yes. you know, some holy script or something that couldn't be changed or challenged. And, you know, bringing people along, maybe are we are we giving ourselves a job here, you know, uh, to be more public minded as historians, not just leave it to public historians, but all of us to try to reach out to our communities, for example, our fellow teachers, uh, but 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 groups, uh, community groups and others who might be interested in what, you know, what's going on, you know, with scholarship and, and uh, historical research and prevailing, you know, notions about this or that question. Uh, in other words, we have some responsibility, it seems to me, if we don't like the way history is presented in the public square to begin initiating those conversations about a, a different understanding of history. That's right. Um, I, I would I would agree with that. That a you know that it, it bothers me when historians. I mean, we all complain, and uh, but you know what are we doing about it, right? You know, I don't mean to sound like everybody's <laughs> cranky grandmother or whatever, but you know, uh, okay, yes, but what are we doing about it? And um, certainly, I have no illusions that any of us can single handedly transform everything at once. Uh, sometimes it feels hard to to do anything at all. Um, but I do think that we can at least, you know, uh, I mean, you know, this is how I how I understand, you know, the principles of both activism and organizing, right? Not a certainty of a positive outcome, but a belief that the process, the act matters. Uh, having identified a problem that acting uh, toward it matters uh, in hopes of fixing it, but if nothing else, and in, in hopes of, uh, you know, continuing to keep alive the idea that it is a problem. Um, and uh, so I think then also the other piece I take from what you say is about context. Uh, you know, what, uh, you know, if we're trying to meet people where they are, um, where are they? Uh, in this place, it was literally Gettysburg on, on you, know, uh, you know, in September, uh, you know, for myself or, you know, uh, Elizabeth City for Hillary and so on. Um, but what are they there engaging with? And the questions that I would have uh, on that are really, you know, how do, you know, for people who are like, what's being said new about the Civil War? Um, then, you know, you know, then that's when, you know, hey, there's all this cool stuff going on or about Reconstruction. For people who think, you know, they're coming to a battlefield to encounter, um, you know, stories, responding with stories um, you know, is, is something that Scott really helped me to, I'm interested in storytelling in other contexts, but to really help me to understand uh, what that meant in that context. Uh, that what he felt is that the people are really primed to reject the idea of us laying a narrative on top of them. And it does make me queasy for the reasons I think you alluded to of me saying, here's the right interpretation, right? We spend all our time saying things are debatable. 
uh, and people are very <laughs> adept at turning that back on us. But in fact, there are things that create a space for doubt, re-examination, contemplation, and those can include this kind of evidence, uh, you know, like, uh, what did Lee say? You know, what did he do at, at, at the plantation that he controlled in Alexandria? What happened in these other contexts? And it can include that evidence. And it can also include life stories. Uh, one thing that Hillary has talked about is the number of people who are very skeptical, but when they start to encounter basic stories, this enslaved person, you know, built this building on campus, that that does, or, you know, was a piece of building this building on campus, that that does create a kind of uh, humanizing of the, of the history in a way that gives pause to people. Um, you know, and, and so I think there are, you know, it depends on the context. Uh, and I'm sensitive to the idea that our end goal is to help people to think more and to respect their ability to think, especially since if we don't, they're going to reject us anyway, right? Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, what is the right strategic way to engage it at, at, at what place, at what time? You know, when are people ready to hear about new interpretations? And when is it something more along the lines of what hasn't been told here? Uh, you know, what has been, been covered up? What do we know? Uh, there's a number of even quite conservative people around Gettysburg who are quite interested in the question of surprise that there was an old African-American community, obviously surprised that the Confederacy was going through those towns trying to enslave free people and sell them, send them back into Virginia to be sold into slavery. And who even without accepting all the premises that we might get to of the interpretation of the war can understand that that's a story that has meaning and validity that that, you know, uh, you know, alongside, you know, uh, other stories and that hasn't been told. So, Greg, you know, you and I were chatting on the phone the other day uh, and uh, we mentioned the, the 1619 project uh, uh, that The New York Times uh, unveiled, oh, I guess, uh, a little over a year ago now and which has been in, in the news in various guises since. Uh, its lead writer, Nicole Hannah-Jones, won the, the Pulitzer for, I believe it was uh, not history, but uh, I want to say maybe commentary. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it, okay, so we, we, you know, we talk as historians about bringing, uh, as you just did, uh, news stories forward. Because stories have their own sort of efficacy. You know, when people hear the life story of, say, an enslaved person or a formerly enslaved person, that it, it somehow it helps to humanize uh, the history and, and makes it more relatable as, if you, as opposed to if you just offer an argument or some kind of interpretation that, uh, you know, sort of hydroplanes across the top of those life stories. And so I was wondering, you know, how something like the 1619 Project, because Josh and I have spent some time talking about it. We've interviewed teachers and anecdotally, at least the teachers we talk to are excited about the opportunity uh, to present material in a new way, a different way, uh, maybe an edgier, even way that speaks to some of the concerns of the moment that, that we're living in. Uh, but I think that, and as Nicole Anna Jones herself admitted, you know, she's not a historian, but that going forward, the point would be to try to 
find those stories, and, and let's face it, historians have done a lot of the excavation of this already and, and have for years, finding those stories that in the case of the 1619 Project would make it seem maybe to some of those who are, oh, I don't know, uncertain about it or feel threatened in some way about it, would, would, would help to, you know, create a, a kind of momentum for understanding the potential of something like 16, in the context of, of people's lives, that is the lived experiences of people in history. So I, I, I guess that's, you know, what I'm thinking has to happen next. But I, you know, I'd be curious to know how you feel then about both the reception of 1619, how you see it playing into these sort of, you know, future conversations. So I probably, um, I would guess that, you know, like, uh, you know, that you all have done similar things to this at the you know, beginning of, uh, of my intro to U.S. history survey, 17A at Davis, you know, large class, uh, you know, a couple hundred students. And um, I'll pose on the second or third day of class after talking about uh, the, you know, original peopling of the Americas. Um, and then, you know, I'll pose, so, uh, you know, where do you think the history of what becomes the United States starts? And now with technology, I, I give them, survey, you know, a survey so they can fill out different numbers. And, uh, you know, you can, A, it's a, partly a test of what dates do they recognize at all, right? Uh, 1619, 1620, mm -hmm. right? You know, so uh, 1619 versus 1620 for, uh, you know, uh, so we're, you know, at a, at a Southern slavery story or, or a Northern you know, religious dissenter story, uh, 1776, 1787, etc. Different examples of, uh, of of when they might start it, and also so that they will be starting to think for themselves from day one about uh, themselves as historians. That they should have a kind of you know meta commentary on my choices, right? You know that uh, what choices am I making? What other choices are out there? You know, to what degree does does the choice that I make? Uh, seem right to them. Um, and so then I, I use the next few classes to kind of lay out what some of, what's built into some of these starting points and also where they came from. Um, you know, why the interest in uh, the pilgrims, you know, have developed in the mid-19th century in part as a counter to a story that the United States was a fundamentally Southern nation. So in the sense that in some ways 1619 is arguably the oldest popular narrative. It just was told from a different perspective, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That it was, you know, people like uh, late in the 19th century uh, into the 20th, the people who started New York Historical Society, Massachusetts Historical Society are deliberately countering what they say as assumption, not so much 1619, but Jamestown as the founding of the country. Their success then leads to, you know, people by the, uh, uh, you know, people by the middle to late 20th century uh, feeling that there's a sort of uh, unified, uh, you know, set of claims about New England or, you know, once again, or, or the pilgrims. Um, and so then a reaction, you know, understandable reaction against that. So I do think it's helpful for people to put that in context. It's not the first time we've wrestled with was the U.S. Mm -hmm. launched as a Southern plantation society. Uh, and it's not the first time that that has been centered, sometimes with very different valences, around the question of how slavery shaped the United States. In fact, many, uh, you, know, uh, you know, John Calhoun had no problem articulating that as a central aspect of, uh, of U.S. history or James Henry Hammond or other 
um, you know, pro-Southern Southern nationalists, whether before the Confederacy like Calhoun or, or Confederates eventually like Hammond. Um, so that these uh, exist as, 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 as narratives worth reckoning with. Um, and in that sense, when I saw 1619, I was really excited um, that, you know, A, there's a number of ways in which it articulates things that, you know, I think uh, many of us teach, um, but that remain hard to get into public consciousness about the centrality of slavery, not just to secession, to, but to a great deal of U.S. history, um, of the relationship of slavery to economic development, national development, and about the, you know, what some scholars call the afterlives of slavery, um, or the limitations of emancipation, or the ways in which processes seem to, uh, built in slavery, seem to outlive slavery. Um, or, you know, counter, counter, you know, interpretation, but with a similar endpoint um, about the ways that new systems of racial dominance arose in new technologies and, and Jim Crow and, and, and a period of Jim Crow segregation um, with resonance back to older practices and, and but also this, uh, this novelty. So I think it was really exciting to see that. They called upon a lot of people to, you know, help them do that. Um, and it was an interesting intervention where you could see people really wrestling with that, reckoning with that, people feeling like they hadn't been taught this. In that context, it's an amazing thing to have 1619. If they've never heard it, um, you know, then, you know, of course they should be hearing it. At the same time, there were a couple of pieces of it that I felt uneasy with. One of which was, uh, if my memory's right, I don't have it in front of me, but the original text said something like, The Founding. Well, this is the kind of historian's worry, but you know, that I wouldn't say. A founding, sure. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> the founding seemed to imply a kind of certainty and fixed understanding that's mm -hmm. not how historians work, right? You know, uh, mm -hmm. that, uh, the, that engagement with debates, multiplicity. Second, another thing that did worry me, you know, but it's a work of journalism, not of history, is a kind of uh, another thing that I think, you know, that many of us try and teach as historians, um, is the idea of unexpected consequences or the difference between reading effect versus intentions. And there were some pieces of this where I think um, that got blurry or where things seemed to fit so clearly into a single unified narrative that there really wasn't much space for context um, or for contingency. Uh, and at times, worryingly, there wasn't even really that much space for contestation, for the idea that these were things that were fought about. Um, and so that fear always, you know, as journalists come into talking about the past of flattening, which wasn't only there in this context, but in others too. Um, and then, you know, it did concern me, some of the principled, you know, questions raised by especially Leslie Harris of Northwestern, that they had consulted with her about about the section on the relationship of slavery and the revolution, uh, that she, a very distinguished historian of slavery in the colonial and revolutionary period, indicated to them that they were choosing a wording that wasn't scholarly defensible, and they went with it anyway. Um, so, you know, even while doing other really good pieces of it, and in many respects, uh, Professor Harris, uh, you know, praises 1619 while also acknowledging mm -hmm. this, this challenge. And then it all got tied up into these debates that, you know, really cast a lot more heat than light of 
scholars who responded <laughs> critically, but in a pretty unconvincing way, in my view, and then obviously even uh, less convincingly, the eventual intervention of uh, the president and members of, uh, <laughs> of Congress with a kind of grotesquely flat vision of history, which I think does have the unintended consequence of making 1619 look better and better. If the alternative is the 1776 <laughs> project, I think every historian would be, uh, you know, that I know of is, is all good to go on, on the 1619 prevailing there. Um, but is it possible also to, even while recognizing that journalism is going to have a different tone and need for clarity and simplification, to also figure out how these things can build in some of those historical virtues? of uh, you know, multiplicity of explanation, of contingency complexity, um, and of uh, the idea of, of, of historical irony that effects and, and intentionalities don't always line up neatly, and uh, that that's what gives the sort of wonder and mystery and, and revelation of actually looking deep. There's, there's definitely a thing where, um, regardless of, of the issues with it, it, almost if it scares the right people, it must be doing something right. <laughs> And yeah, a lot depends on, you know, what people are contrasting it to, right? I think if people have had your class, then the 1619, you know, project probably strikes them as, as, you know, familiar and maybe, uh, you know, reductive. If people have been stuck with some of the classes of, of, you know, uh, some of the high school classes they've had, you know, some places, including in California, they've had incredibly complicated visions coming from high school classes. And in other places, uh, they might not have been exposed to this at all. So, you know, like anything, what you receive depends on where, you you know, what you've already received. Right. You know, that that got me thinking about um, just... You know, the U.S. History Survey in general, I, I know, I, I think Chris talked to you about this a little bit. Chris has his own views on, on the future of the U.S. History Survey. But it, it's very, it's fascinating to think about, you know, the way we were taught U.S. History versus the way, I, I you know, I assume you're now teaching your classroom and then thinking about where maybe it's going to go in the future. Do you, do you have an idea of, of where you think the U.S. History Survey, you know, maybe needs to go in the future? You know, what, because... We're, we have this long, big discussion right now in our own department about Western Civ and, and, you know, which just seems like an anachronism that probably shouldn't be taught anymore. And, you know, our view of Western Civ is that it's reform is not viable. It needs to be abolished, to use the, the language of the day. What can be done to the U.S. History Survey to make it, you know, to use that term, to decolonize a little bit, to get that complexity out of it, to... Um, you know, all the things you were talking about with 1619, what still needs to be done with the U.S. History Survey to, to make sure that it's still a viable class that speaks to the concerns and is relevant to people, you know, in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? It's a really good question. And, and so, you know, I can certainly grasp uh, the sort of Western Civ, you know, from its formulation as, as it has a set of premises that um, are hard to defend. Well, some people find it easy to defend, but I would find hard to defend <laughs> and that, you know, really starting over and asking, you know, what's, you know, what's, what are we here for? Um, right. in, in a way, the U.S. History Survey faces a more difficult and in a way an easier challenge. Um, mm-hmm. The part of it that's easier is I think there remains a justification for in the U.S., teaching the history of the country, not with blinders about its relationship to the world, with uh, sensitivity about its relationship to the world, 
Um, but for the same reason that it makes sense that there is a greater attention to the history of Scotland at the University of Edinburgh, at, uh, at England, at yeah, London, uh, you know, at, at Rome, at Italy at the University of Rome, of Japan at the, you know, at, at Tokyo University. Um, in other words, I think that there is one of the aspects of, uh, of history has been to help people understand where they are, whether or not it's where they're from. And that especially its relationship to what I think can come across as kind of fuddy-duddy-ish or conservative, but I think actually serves really useful radical ends, which is to uh, really engage civics. Uh, if people are mm -hmm. likely, if a number, not all, but if a number of students are likely to become eligible voters in the United States, having them have some sense of what the United States system, how it developed, what it was fought over, what pieces of it, uh, you know, are recently arriving, what pieces of it, you know, emerged to serve what issues, how it was structured. This seems to me really helpful and useful and not at all a inherently conservative project. I don't really know how you could build a viable, you know, democratic, uh, say, say, say a democratic socialist project without really engaging. Um, with the, what people know need to know about history, and in fact, I think you know you can see that in lots of these these movements, um, this interest in it. So, in that sense, the justification for U.S. history could be fuddy-duddy-ish, but it can also be forward-looking. That makes the argument to defend it easier, and it makes doing it better harder. Uh, which is <laughs> that because of that, you know, there's a sort of relief in being able to start afresh. And it's really hard to start U.S. history afresh, right? You know, people start longer and longer ago. You know, I start with the Kelp Highway, and some people start more with plate tectonics. People, you know, build in more <laughs> international engagement of the U.S., of the U.S. and the world models. Uh, my colleague Ellen Hardigan-O'Connor was part of a textbook that is uh, about global Americans understanding, teaching the U.S. survey, but still through this constant sense of its relationship to the world. And there's all kinds of really interesting ways that people um, do this, and yet it can also feel like it's hard to actually shake U.S. history loose, right? Or do something, you know, or to, to do something new. I know of some cool stuff. I, I mean, I'm uh, sort of uh, weary of throwing out things that other people have tried that I haven't because, uh, you know, it shows my cowardice, I guess. Uh, Caleb McDaniel, wonderful <laughs> historian at Rice, he tried teaching the survey backwards. Not literally backwards, but he started the first day and said, what are the things, uh, I think this was the second half of the survey, what are the things you would want to know uh, about how things in front of you, what their roots were? And they kind of did polls and they got a series of things and he did these thematic, you know, people wanted to understand. Uh, you know, the roots of residential segregation, and he talked about, you know, about this. Um, and in this sense, this building on their curiosity, they're out in the world, how did this get here? Can that be built into a survey? Um, I mean, it's uh, hard for a someone who really is fascinated with sequence, like I am, to imagine being that open. Uh, and you can imagine people coming out of it with both a really rich understanding of those questions and a lack of understanding of how the pieces fit together. Um, yeah. But then sometimes I feel like they come out of a sequential class with a sense of how they fit together and not why they matter. Um, right. You know, and uh, so 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 I don't know. There are some interesting things going on out there, but I don't have the solution. But I do think it's worth defending the idea that the U.S. survey has 
value and meaning and is worth doing well if we can figure out how to do it well. Yeah, it's a really great point. I mean, the thing with Western Civ, once you get rid of it, then the rest is easy, right? You've, you've solved the problem. There's t tons of alternatives you can come up with, but right you know it, it, it is a harder problem if you're going to keep it then what needs to be done with it um that gets pretty fraught and gets pretty can, can be pretty contentious and it's it's an uns, in so many in many ways it's an unsolvable question right you're never going to be totally satisfied with with the result but I, I mean maybe that's what we need to do is just be willing to continue to ask questions and change things as necessary and adapt things as necessary um instead of having you know one goal in mind just to to be responsive to the world we're actually living in um, is, is maybe the solution, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. That, that, and it's also one of those things that even if somehow one were to solve it, um, that solution would dissolve uh, pretty quickly, right? <laughs> you know, that a new set of concerns, a new set of events, uh, you know, a difference in how people are being taught at uh, high school levels would mean that, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things where you're building, you know, you're rebuilding the ship as you're, as you're at sea, right? Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know if that's a hopeful or less hopeful sense that it can't be done <laughs> perfectly, but, you know, there's still value in continuing to try to, to rebuild it. Yeah. Well said. Uh, listen, Gregory Downs, it's been an absolute delight to have you on History Against the Grain today. I hope you won't be wildly surprised if a few months down the road we... Uh, invite you back uh, sure, to I'd revisit some of the things that haven't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> this this pregnant moment of possibility we seem to be living in on so many fronts right now, including um, the piece that uh, you and Scott Hancock and Kate and others have done with the uh, you know with the, uh, the the teachable moments we might call them on the battlefields and and uh, there are there's no shortage of battlefields. Uh, obviously, where these historical interests are concerned. So, uh, yeah, thanks again so much for coming on today, Greg. No, thank you so much for having me and for uh, the work that you all are doing in getting ideas about teaching and thinking about history out into uh, into the public world of, uh, of podcast listening. That was another fun interview with a with a great scholar in uh, Greg, and you know he was making a really interesting point kind of later in the interview about the power of stories. That when you go to these monuments as historians and, and talk to people, that stories and, and narratives become a, a really important way of of getting them to think about history differently. Like he, he talked about, you know, talking about the, um, the the black communities that live in Gettysburg and in the area, and that you know people didn't know about that, and that changes how they think of these things. Or uh, he talked also about a, a fort, I think it's in Washington, D.C., that was uh, built on the land of a, a free black woman who it was taken from uh, the land of a, a free black woman. And it reminded me of something I was reading the other day um, by a guy who actually works for the historian named Christopher Wilson, who works at the American History Museum. He was talking about John Brown. It was recently the anniversary of, was it the, the John Brown's raid that we just passed the anniversary mm -hmm. of? Yeah, so he was talking about about views of John Brown, and actually he was reacting to something uh, in the story. H. W. Brands was saying, which is that um, he says Brown was on the H. W. Brands said Brown was on the right side of history, 
but still wrong. Um, and the idea was because he engaged in violence, he was wrong. And Christopher Wilson uh, countered that because he's been doing this program where he kind of using um, um, theater and using, um, you know, kind of uh, these these stage plays introduces people to, to history. And what he said is that um, that when he presented people with uh, these depictions of John Brown, it changed them. Uh, going into these shows, they tend to see John Brown as this kind of crazy zealot, as Wilson says. And he says, when our theater program showed Brown was eloquent, charismatic, and rational, people felt his legacy was positive and he should be revered. So they went into this, you know, with this view of, of John Brown, again, as this crazy, violent zealot and came out of it with this idea that, oh no, he was a committed idealist who was working for, you know, the freeing of people. Um, and it's a really powerful uh, notion that, you know, I think as we've talked about before, you really can change minds with good stories and good accounts and, and accounts that are not afraid to actually address what was actually happening in history instead of trying to put uh, these kind of blinders on what we talk about and how we talk about those things. I was really struck by that as well. Uh, it's it's the power of a story that involves recognizably human actors, you know, uh, that mm -hmm. is people that, uh, you know, in, in a way that movies and cinema and, and other art forms often do, you know, are able to reveal, you know, some fully human dimension of of right. the past. And so, yeah, I, I agree. And in the case of a guy like, you know, John Brown, who so easily becomes a kind of metaphor or symbol or something, you know, it's easy. It's easy to lose, you know, what in effect were the, um, you know, the human dimensions of, of what was happening at, the, at that time. And, and that's why really what Greg and Scott Hancock and and uh, Kate Mazur and some of these other folks are, are doing, you know, to go to these battlefields because, you know, the, the, the people that come to battlefield, there are varieties of people, you know, will go to Civil War battlefields. But as I suggested in the interview, there's a hardcore element, too, that sees all of this symbolically as, you know, the, um, you know, the kind of uh, what the kind of, uh, you know, cover for, you know, white America or white you know, white mm -hmm. nationalism or something that it, that that's heritage, right? Yeah. Heritage, heritage is sometimes we... that's a good point. You know, it's sort of masked that way. Uh, and so, you know, the, the basic faith, you know, I guess that, you know, the leap of faith you're making there is you're saying, well, okay, that's what the symbol is. You know, that's what the statue represents metaphorically or, you know, for you, but, but here's what the story was, you know, here's mm -hmm. what, actually happen. And I tell you what, uh, we'll post this on uh, our website, along with the uh, article that, that you just mentioned. Uh, Greg wrote a piece uh, for the uh, New York Times back in 2015 called The Myth of Appomattox. And mm -hmm. it was sort of playing off uh, his book, uh, similarly titled After Appomattox. And what he did is, you know, he took that moment at the end of the Civil War you know, where uh, Grant's army is, has defeated uh, Lee's army, you know, and what becomes the last sort of ditch effort by Lee's army to, you know, to keep the war going. Um, and there's the meeting of the, the two generals. And, and, and so this has become, you know, so almost, you know, mawkishly uh, mythologized, you know, as this mm -hmm. moment with the dignity and bearing of Robert E. Lee, the very quintessence of the Southern gentleman, 
And a lot of that, by the way, was played up in the in the famous Ken Burns Civil War yeah. uh, documentary that was done back in the 90s, you know, with the music and the lighting and the, the Southern novelist Shelby Foote with that, you know, warm mm -hmm. Southern drawl. I mean, the, the whole thing, it was just made for the theater almost. And uh, what Greg says in his piece is it's, you know, it's almost totally all bullshit, you know, that... Mm -hmm. uh, that that's not at all how it played out. And, and in fact, because it was mythologized that way, we somehow have this comfortable notion that, you know, reconciliation began there. But what he shows in his book uh, is that far from reconciling or even the war ending is that really grievous violence continued, uh, you know, into reconstruction for the next several years. Uh, the rise of, of groups like the Ku Klux Klan and other terrorist groups that, you know, rained havoc down on the freedmen, the former slaves, uh, so much so that the Union uh, Army, the U.S. Army, had to maintain martial law just to keep order. And when Reconstruction was over, you know, the dam breaks again. And, you know, what we get is, you know, racial terrorism, uh, lynching, segregation, Jim Crow that for the next uh, well, <laughs> several decades. <Forever. laughs> yeah, but really, yeah. in some ways, the legacy right down to our own time. So his point, Greg's point, you know, in, in, in writing this is that, you know, we have to be much more attentive to how we mythologize things, even like the ending of wars, you know, and what the what right. happens next, lest we assume like our friend John Meacham does in the soul of America, <laughs> cue, cue the violin music, the cello music, the soul of America, as he says, prevailed, past tense, right? Yeah. Already happened, yeah. already fixed, already over. And, and I think as our, our listeners will appreciate, you and I have been basically uh, saying that's a lot of bunk. Yeah, you know, it actually reminds me of, of what we were talking about a few weeks ago with, with uh, Panilla about the study of polyrhythmic history and, and how much the story changes when you don't see these moments as these rupture points, like these before and after mm -hmm. points, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and see it as kind of this, you know, longer stream of music from, from these different instruments playing at the same time. And you got to follow these different strands because in, in, um, in Greg's book, he has this, uh, I, I, I might be misremembering the, the exact quote, but it's something like, you know, Lee, Ask, uh, ask Grant for peace and, and Grant responds I'm like I don't have the authority to give you peace but I will take your surrender exactly. and it just makes me makes me think of you know famously the Korean War never officially ended right there's a ceasefire but but there's technically they're still at war with each other and if we see in American history that the end of the Civil War doesn't actually bring peace it just brings another stage of warfare a different kind of warfare that the violence didn't end in 1865, it didn't end in 1871, it didn't end in 1877 mm -hmm. with the end of Reconstruction, that it flowed through that and continues to plague, you know, black communities today uh, through police violence and, and others, you know, and, and state violence against black communities. Mm -hmm. um, it creates this, this, you know, this line, this legacy that you can trace back. Um, and, uh, you know, it doesn't begin at, at, at one point, it just never ends. It never had had an ending, basically. Yeah, unlike the sort of tidy summation, you know, of the uh, the set piece, you know, which has yeah. the curtain closing and the audience, you know, applauding, you know, standing, mm -hmm. cheering, you know, whatever, um, that that history is this ongoing burden, you know, that that yeah. we cannot really escape, you know, and and far from having prevailed, and there we can tie it off, you know. Uh, 
I think I was closer to seeing that that originally that image on HBO as uh, some kind of zombie movie, you know, because that that struck me as being closer <laughs> to the truth, you know. The, uh, yeah, the undead. Yeah, yeah you know, but uh, this thing won't die, and so. You know what Greg suggested about you know constructive ways to engage the public. I really I really appreciated you know whether they be any sort of listening sessions or you know I know you and I were were pulling our hair out a while back with Jill Lepore. Uh, I mean you know I've already uh, socked uh, John Meacham in the nose today, so I'm I'm not yeah. going to punch Jill. But but you know she wrote that piece that had. Uh, her saying that any effort after the Trump administration, whenever that uh, is, and by the way, we're doing this, uh, our last broadcast before the election, folks. So, Josh, <laughs> I hope I see you on the other side. But in, I just started sweating. I don't know why. But, but yeah. <laughs> in any event, Jill Lepore says there won't be any need for anything like a truth and reconciliation moment in America. That's the job of historians. And that takes decades and hindsight. And I'm thinking to myself, what are you talking about? You know, if crimes have been committed, it's like sending off Robert E. Lee to be president of Washington and Lee College yeah. or something. If, if we're just going, you know, we're sending Richard Nixon off to his his estate in San Clemente and having Gerald Ford say the long national nightmare is over. It's not over. And if there have been yeah. crimes committed, instead of burning the documents and filling the Indian sky with smoke, we need to know what they are to have any mm -hmm. kind of chance you know, to rectify these wrongs and to put this thing on, you know, a better course. But uh, yeah, so I, I very much disagreed with Jill Lepore in that sense that, uh, you know, as if the only option was to some, somehow turn it into just a partisan tit for tat, you know, but I don't think that's right. the point. And the point isn't just to call a statue of history, it's to take a hard, long look at what actually happened you know, based on the, the best available evidence to do what we do and to bring moral clarity to the task. That's the job of History Against the Grain. This has been episode 28, and we will talk to you again next week. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again so you don't have to see what's happening. Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV. Stop sucking. Cycle so we were